Wisdom with Scott Allen. Hello, I am your host, Scott Allen, and this is Phrenesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. If the topic is leadership, I'm in. I've spent more than 20 years in the field teaching, learning, writing, and questioning. When I'm not working on Phrenesis, I travel, delivering keynotes, working with individuals and teams, and helping people from organizations across industries become better leaders. Want to learn more? Visit me at scottjallen.net. Phrenesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion about all things leadership. We explore relevant topics and incorporate practical tips to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Listen Notes lists Phrenesis in the top 3% of podcasts worldwide. Phrenesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, ILA brings together those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge, and practice for a better world. Learn more at ila-net.org. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. Finally, if you enjoy Phrenesis, please subscribe to stay current on our weekly episodes. If you find an episode that resonates, please share it with your colleagues and friends. And if you want more content, subscribe to my newsletter, The Leader's Edge. The link is in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. And now, here's today's show. Okay, everybody, welcome to the Phronesis Podcast. Thank you so much for checking in wherever you are in the world. I have another fun episode today with co-host Father David McCallum. And as many of you longtime listeners know, He is a Jesuit priest and leadership educator. He serves as the founding executive director of the Program for Discerning Leadership, a special project of the General Curia of the Society of Jesus, Georgetown, and the Gregorian University. The program provides leadership formation for senior Vatican officials and major superiors of religious orders in Rome, Italy, and internationally. Currently, Father McKellum lives in Rome, and serves as a member of the Secretariat for the Synod of Bishops' Commission on Methodology, supporting the Synodal Process Initiative by Pope Francis, and as adjunct faculty in the Institute for Anthropology, Interdisciplinary Studies of Human Dignity and Care at the Pontifical Gregorian University. And our guest today, Dr. Aliki Nikolaides, is Professor of Adult Learning and Leadership at the University of Georgia in the Program of Learning, Leadership, and Organization Development. Her research centers on exploring the intraactive dynamics of learning that generate personal and societal transformation. She accomplishes this by focusing her research on the role that learning plays in activating the vital potential that connects self and society. Her desire for creating tools and scaffolds that grow individual and collective capacity for both inquiry and action is central to her approach to teaching and mentoring the next generation of scholars and leaders of change. Dr. Nikolaides is co-founder of the Generative Learning and Complexity Laboratory that brings together scholars and practitioners of learning and complexity science to reimagine learning and development through the lens of generative knowing and complexity learning. The results of her scholarship are shaping a new philosophical strand of adult learning, what she describes as generative knowing, ways of being and becoming that liberate potential creatively. Dr. Nikolaides is founding steward and current director of the International Transformative Learning Association, 
And of course, her book was recently released, Generative Knowing, Principles, Methods, and Dispositions of an Emerging Adult Learning Theory. That's where we're going to have some of our conversation today. Doctor, what else do listeners need to know about you? What is not in that bio that people might find interesting? Well, thank you for that introduction. And it's so fun to be here with both of you. What people don't know about me probably is that I live in a multi-generational home with my 92-year-old father and almost, I'll just say septuagenarian mother. She doesn't like me to tell her about the precise age. (laughs) Um, They are currently away visiting my sister. And so I have a task which my father tutored me on, and that is how to water his pea shoots. So my father's hobby is gardening. And when he leaves, I must take care, tend to those 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 little flowers that he's planting or vegetables that he's planting in a very particular way. And I have stress about it because you have to use the shower part of the hose so that you can water. You have to wiggle it around. You can't put the water directly on the plant because they're too young. So anyway. <laughs> this sounds like a whole world. This is a big, this is big business. Big business. Yeah. Well, and and Father David, how are you, sir? I'm really well. Thanks very much, Scott. And where are you in the world today? Outside of Rome, in a place called Il Carmelo. It's a uh, conference center near Ciampino Airport. And we're working with a couple of teams doing some facilitation and and, uh, merger work today. So it's quite, quite an intense day. Windy, cool, beautiful, and spring-like. Well, you both have your different complex challenges ahead of you, just in very different ways. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> well, okay, so Father David, maybe you can talk a little bit about how the two of you cross paths. This is an introduction that you have made, and uh, I'm so excited that you're here to have this conversation with me. So maybe talk about the history and the roots of your relationship, and then we'll jump into the conversation. So Aliki and I go back to uh, 2004, basically, where I was starting doctoral studies at Columbia. Aliki was uh, there for a year already, a known quantity for the faculty and that community. And when I came into the program, it was immediately clear to me she was a force to be reckoned with. You know, when she introduced herself, I, within a few minutes, found out that not only was uh, born in the United States, but raised in Crete and Greece and then and then Singapore. She had made this journey into uh, Tibetan Buddhism and had been doing conflict resolution work in Syria, of all places, uh, for the State Department. I mean, this is a person who just had an incredible background and, uh, and a lot of um, personality to match. And we formed this amazing friendship. Uh, We've been kind of playmates and intellectual sort of thought partners for the last 20 years or so. It's been an amazing journey as friends. I'd say that we've been very much developmental friends, helping each other to kind of manage some of the challenges and opportunities in our own lives and really support each other through some of those critical times, both in doctoral work and afterwards. So as I've witnessed, Kaliki continue to evolve her own thinking, was uh, was really present as she was working on this, this book. I just feel like this is a book that needs a wider audience beyond the uh, adult learning field, especially for those of us who are in the leadership field. 
Um, so many of us who are doing coaching, consulting, leadership development, we know that it's a lot bigger than a bottom line. It's a lot more about forming people and helping people to find their depth, their voice, liberate their potential, really bring their service forward in the world. And I think that Aliki's uh, work can help us to do that. So it's a privilege to be with you and to kind of create this bridge between you today. Well, where would you like to start the conversation today, David? Well, I thought it might be interesting for Aliki to tell us a little bit of the origin story of this this really emergent way of thinking about how adults learn and grow. And then after she talks about where the origins of that story are, what they might have to do with, with leadership in her, in her own perspective. I love it. I love it. Well, thanks. This is going to be fun. It's always fun to have conversations with my best friend here who challenges me and supports me. So <laughs> thanks for bringing me here to this relationship with you and, and Scott, David. Origins are a really interesting way to, to start because there is a lineage that I think this theory or this theorizing, I think it's important to recognize that what I've been doing is is troubling the idea of how we learn. Right? And I've been interested in this, this idea of how we learn for a very long time because I've always interested in this question, which is if we learn, why do we learn to make a mess of things? Why do we learn to not love and care for one another? Why do we learn to create war and terror? Like, I've always been very curious about that, particularly because I come from a displaced people. You know, I'm a, I'm a, a Greek Palestinian woman born of parents who were displaced because of war. So decisions other leaders make about people's lives creates ripples, right? For, generations long. And so the, the lifeline of learning is not merely a point in time. It's an ocean. And we think about learning and leadership as these inflection points when really they are oceans. They're rippling energetic forces. And that's been something that I haven't been able to articulate. It took me, you know, 10 years of my own research. And 20 years before that of bumping up against, you know, every learning and leadership model that I could, you know, bricolage together to create a program for people, right? Like that's what I did in, in Southeast Asia after I finished my master's degree. You know, I kind of was bringing learning and leadership and conflict resolution together to say, okay, when we bring these ideas together, we can create these opportunities to learn to do things better to be more productive, to be more effective, to be more efficient, to perform, whatever. But I realized as I was doing that work, I was frustrated because I still saw the same reproductive mechanism of leaving people behind, leaving messes. That was still happening, even when the learning and leadership created this wonderful moment of awareness or aha or opening or even a little shift in perspective, there were still things that were being left behind. Mm. Like ideas, concepts, you know, difference. And that's troubled me. And so when I did my my research, originally when Dave and I were at Columbia, we were both interested in, in developmental ways of looking at learning and leadership. David took a different approach. I took a different approach. But we were really, really fascinated mm. by how do these ideas, when ignited, live and make a difference? Hmm. So that's kind of one way of telling the origin story. 
And hopefully I'm making some connections between the learning and leadership bit. I am definitely looking at leader. And I actually don't really like the word leadership, to be honest. Mm-hmm. I feel that that is an outdated word. We can no longer use the word leadership. I mean, leader formation, which I think, you know, the formation approach that David takes is a lot more generative, I think. And, and that's interesting to me. And that feels right, more ripe to me as a connection. Learning and leader formation, I think they go very well together. I do think that as scholars of learning and leadership, though, we have to change the language. The language is broken. It no longer works. It reproduces things we no longer need. For listeners, I know already you've noticed just the incredible language that Aliki is using. It's just inspiring. And I wish you could see her as well, because her use of hand gestures is just masterful as she explains the origin story. It was just wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And and I agree that our language limits us, right? Henry Mintzberg, I did an episode with him recently, and he's calling it community ship. That may or may not be the word, but there's a there's a more of a collective word that we are progressing that's needed versus the individual, right? This is a we moving forward. Is that how you're thinking about it? Is that how you're framing it in your mind? It is a disruption. So even, you know, it isn't just a move from an I to a we to, you know, an us. It isn't, again, I, I'm going to keep playing with a, with an ocean metaphor. It is an ecosystem, right? Mm. We don't know how to think in ecosystems. We've left that to our anthropology, biology friends. Although Gregory Bateson already was talking about learning and decision making, responsibility you know, a very long time ago. So I think we can go to some of our transdisciplinary philosophers who are giving us some language, even in Ignatian spiritual theology, this idea of communal discernment. That's also interesting too. There's this, how do we capture the ecosystem of an ocean, the ecosystem of learning, the ecosystem of, of, of leader formation in a word, in a moment? And, and I think that's where for me, I found the word generative gave me the most space to work with because ultimately in the origin of the word generative is also something that comes out of nothing. Creation, right? Something that comes out of, well, seemingly nothing, but maybe more generative in the sense of something that comes out of the mystery, something that I cannot foreknow. I cannot foreknow the ecology and how it's working to create this moment, this inflection point where I might learn and act in a way that creates something new, right? Something beneficial, right? Because I am a human being. Ultimately, I want to do good things. I can decenter myself a lot, but I ultimately, my heart, I want to do good things. But how do I do good things if I'm not conscious of and in relationship with the whole ecosystem in which I'm in, which I, which is, you know, those of you who are OD consultants are going to hate me. You'll probably press stop. It's like, I think OD as a field has failed. We have failed as OD. What is an OD consultant doing? Attempting to mobilize an ecology without understanding the ecological threads, that mystery that's happening within an ecology of a system to actually make it move in a different way. I would much rather have that as a, like, what would be the Jedi training? Cause it is May the 4th. What's the Jedi training of learning and leader formation that allows us to move with an entire ecology? Now that's something new. Hmm. And that's yeah. where I hope generative knowing is like a portal or a door opening so that we can discover that together. 
I mean, I think Mintberg is right. It is a battle we-ness, but we have to call it something else. Mm. It's a more than we. Well, it's funny. First of all, Scott, I'm so glad that you brought our listeners' attention to these incredibly poetic gestures that that Aliki makes with her hands. No Roman or Italian has got anything on this Greek Palestinian for <laughs> expressiveness. Number two, as you have already pointed out, and I'm really feeling right now, kind of humbled by the way in which Aliki, you're presenting just this incredible field in which we are trying to navigate and make sense these days. Um, like you said, and I know that water is a very powerful metaphor for you, it's like standing before the ocean and trying to make sense of what's below the surface. And we can only see so far. So the ideas of predictive data-informed action really will only take us so far before all kinds of other fluid dynamics will interfere. And I'm conscious even here, you know, we came in with a plan of how to mobilize this group of decision makers in a certain direction. And after five minutes, you know, we had to really rethink the plan. And that involves this, this kind of knowing that is different from the kind of pre-planned knowing. It means kind of being in the moment. I wonder if you could say something about how this emerging theory of knowing helps you to convey to your students, the people with whom you're interacting, the importance of being in relationship to this ambiguous field, right, in which we're, we're, we're navigating these days. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, sure. And I want to also honor that we can't get where we are without where we've been. Right. And where we've been in terms of how we've thought about how learning and leadership intersect in order to create change, right? Like we're all of us here on this call, that's what we do. We want to create change and we think learning and leadership in some configuration is going to make that change happen. That comes from a kind of mechanistic mind, right? And whether we like it or not, the industrial revolution has influenced all of our theories of learning and, and change and leadership. Until now, maybe now is not this moment, but the last 25 years or so, we have had a new revolution brewing, which is artificial intelligence, right? We've, whatever, internet, industrial 4.0, whichever version of the story you want to tell. That is a new energy that is, is underneath us and it's starting to emerge, right? So that's emerging. The reason why I'm bringing this up is because we're of the age, I mean, we're all Star Wars geeks, right? And we remember the origin stories of heroes and heroines and also beyond the mystery, right? Like Star Wars introduced mystery. It wasn't just about Luke Skywalker. It was about the configuration of the Jedi together that would, you know, essentially defeat the Empire, right? And so I think that's what we're in this moment where what is ambiguous, and in this sense, ambiguous is not we can define ambiguity in many ways. The economists basically define it from a risk perspective. But from a, a philosophical perspective, ambiguity is it's the doorway to mystery, right? When we encounter something that's ambiguous, it means that I don't quite understand it. And that can be scary in a world where knowing is, you know, that's what we, we all get paid the big bucks because we know, 
right? We, I know. I have an answer. I have a model. I have a system. I have approach, right? So to encounter ambiguity is risky business. And the risky business of ambiguity is that it opens up multiple doorways to possibility. Impossibility is where creativity exists. Something that we do not know yet that may be something we cannot conceive of may be, may be the best path forward. But how do we discern that? So here, that's knock on Ignatius's door and say, well, where does discernment happen? Right? Discernment doesn't happen only in my head. Discernment is another ecology. So when I wrote this book, I said, how do we write a book that is a stirring in you? Hmm. Right? So that's how I opened the book. I say, look, this emerging theory is should stir something in you. And if we look at learning and leadership as a stirring, then all of a sudden, just think about it. Where does stirring happen in your body? I mean, just pause for a second. When I say it's a stirring in you, my heart flutters. This, my brain doesn't go, oh, let me just, I mean, I'm going to get eggs and milk and I'm going to make a cake. That's not what happens, right? <laughs> so learning, what if learning was a stirring in you? So what is it ultimately, why are, what is a, a good leader? A good leader knows how to respond in the moment. That's, that's what a good leader is. That's it. That's how I define it. So if learning is a stirring in me that then can configure a response that is just right for the moment, now that's magic. That's a Jedi master. Wow. So that's it. I'm just I'm just doing Jedi stuff. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> I'm just doing Jedi stuff. Well, David, <laughs> even as you reflect on what Aliki just said, I mean, I'm sure some of that in the experience that you're having right now, I mean, did some of what she just said resonate for you based on literally some of the dialogue and discussions you're in now? Oh, yes. I mean... I hate to admit it, but she's always right. <laughs> and I'll tell you this, you know, I, I used to go kind of kicking and screaming along as Aliki would say, no, you've got to get out of your head, pay attention to what your heart is telling you, pay attention to what sensations are coming up in your body, get in touch with where your intuition is getting tweaked, or you have this sense of metaphor you know, that's, that's working in you. And I, I have to say in the first couple of years of our doctoral work together, I used to just instinctively deflect or resist or like clench up when she would do that. Hmm. And I, I don't know if you can relate, but somewhere along the way, you know, all that stuff begins to shift. I think we start to unlearn some of the programming that we've experienced in our own educations. We start to get a little bit more trust in um, our own felt experience. Even that expression, felt experience, used to drive me bananas. And now I, I think to myself, yeah, all that I've been doing over the last three days of facilitation with this group has been drawn from this felt experience. It's this, it's this sense of the tacit knowledge, as you said, Ariki, that comes from our past experiences but it also means kind of feeling into what seems to be emerging next and testing it out and auditioning ideas and, and, and trying something out in an experimental way that may or may not fly, but sometimes shockingly amazing things happen. So we've taken lots of risks this past week. We've done lots of pretty symbolic sort of gestures amongst this group to get them mobilized 
And as if you were, you know, looking at this work as if you were a shaman moving energy around and trying to unlock blockages and remove obstacles and direct energy in a more deep and kind of fluent way. That's, that's what this work feels like at a certain level. And do we have the, the freedom to talk about it that way, to engage our senses in all those ways? I, I really think, Aliki, that you've really helped me, you know, get here. Mm. Well, now it's, now it's made public, David. So, I mean, now it's important. <laughs> you will forever never be able to live that down. <laughs> Thank you Which, for making this recording. <laughs> your work, your work, really is is liberating. Well, I think it's liberating. Well, so one, uh, there's a beautiful phrase that Ann Pendleton Julian said to me once. She said, "You know, complexity traffics in ambiguity. It's a beautiful. It's just a simple way of thinking about that. You know, particularly, and let's just keep using David's context. I mean, you're in a context that is rapidly changing. I mean, you know, a historical context that with thousands of years of history is in a, a, another inflection point, right? In its history and its emergence. And you're responding in the moment and the way that you're responding in the moment is accompanying people to pay attention in a different way. I mean, I think it's great that the, you have a, a meta theory called, you know, Ignatian spirituality, which allows this notion of discernment to be discussable. But then what is dis discernment? But the stirring within, right? The stirring that when I'm in a group of, you know, my supervisors or like for me, I'm a doc, you know, I, I supervise doctoral students, groups of doctoral students. When I'm in a group of doctoral students and I sense the fear, I sense the, anxiety, my response to that will move that group in a particular way. And I've learned that. And I used to feel the my anxiety as a, as a novice professor was, I've got to get them through the next milestone. And now I'm, I've let it all go. In that moment, I'm paying attention to the sensation of where is this group of people moving in response to something they cannot foreknow? Mm. No one knows how to do dissertation. Until they do it. Mm -hmm. And all the way to do it is kicking and screaming and hating it. Right? So now that I know that, how do we do change? We never do change according to any plan. Never. I don't know of any model that works that way. So why do we insist on creating these superficial, you know, these maps of a territory we can never know until we're in it? But how do we stand in a territory that is completely unknown to us without losing it. I mean, that's really the, the the invitation. And so, you know, when you create the containers, that's what developmental theory really helps is like, oh, we now know that if we create enough supports and challenges in a context where there's ripeness and readiness for someone to be in the ambiguity, now we have an ecosystem where potentially new learning can happen and something can emerge that will be the right response. And that's what we're in the business of now, I think, as as educators, as you know, researchers, as actors in the world, as as facilitators, is we're facilitating movement. The movement, I mean, in in, in David's context, it's a movement of spirit. And maybe our movement, it's the movement of willingness to receive new learning. This is a little bit of a challenge, but maybe it's not a challenge. Maybe it's also just building on what you've just shared. At times. I'll just be honest. I feel that sometimes my sense is you overemphasize 
the ambiguity, the mystery, uh, the sense in which we just don't know. And I want to hold on to the idea that we could at least throw down a couple of stones into the water to use as stepping stones. So they may not be models that are 10 steps and, you know, here's the the blueprint to delivering on your dreams, right? But there's something about, you know, putting down the next steps. And it seems like that's what you're talking about. David, I think that's a really wonderful thought. You know, Aliki, as you were speaking, I was trying to think of in our formation of leaders, you know, what's the closest we get to what you're saying right now? And it seems to me the closest we get would be like adaptive leadership with uh, Heifetz and Linsky, where it's less about, you know, here are the four aspects of the four eyes of transformational leadership or LMX. Or I had a conversation once with a very influential expert on change. And I said, is it always these nine? And he said, always. <laughs> I said, for real? Oh. I said, always, right? Oh. And, you know, so to your point of that kind of mechanistic way of kind of doing this work, we then go out and share that with the masses. It's always these nine. It's in many ways setting them up to fail. And so would you agree that maybe Heifetz is the closest we get to helping people better manage some of this space, but it also maybe uh, provides some stepping stones to your point, David, I just would love to know your reaction to that. I mean, I, I think David's challenge is fair in, 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 in the sense that I get to step really, really deeply into the ambiguity because I'm not as scared as I used to be about it. And because that's where I'm sort of situating my scholarship, I'm willing to go there because I know there's still things to be discovered. So let's just, you know, name that that's my role as a scholar is to be in the deep of that for now. because. I don't need to drag everyone else there right now. And how does this, you know, in the deep connect? I think Heifetz is a wonderful first step. Heifetz does the best job of what I call the encounter with ambiguity. Heifetz is brilliant at it because he deconstructs all of the learned models that we have about entering the dynamics of complexity, right? So I would say Heifetz is right there at the, those are great tools and ways to enter the fray, so to speak. How do we enter the fray of the complexity of a system? Heifetz and Linsky are brilliant at that. I would say then Lalu really starts to give us a little bit of a, he, he kind of draws the outline of a map. And I love that Lalu doesn't he sort of gives us a sort of territorial insight into organizational change, you know, whatever the teal organization. But he doesn't, and he talks about certain principles that when put into play can start to generate a map for the system. So I think that would be another toolkit to play with. It's like, oh, once we have attuned ourselves to the complexity in a way that we don't disappear, then we have maybe a way, principles to use to draw our own map. So I think those are two really interesting things to put in conversation. And I think where developmental theory is helpful is particularly at the level of the collective, developmental theory can allow for developmental diversity to sort of be expressed and found and find new rhythms, new water level points, so to speak, within a system that I think can then generate new uh, responses. And I think that as long as we still think in the ways that we think about 
efficiency, effectiveness, performance, productivity. We're going to keep reproducing those things over and over and over again and not really create something different. And that's what I'm, I'm curious about. I'm not, I'm not sure my, the, you know, my theorizing is going to get us there, but I think we need to ask the question in this moment at this time, what does it really mean to lead? What does it really mean to learn? And what are we creating? Not what we are producing. What are we creating? And I think that's an interesting question. You know, what I loved about what you were sharing is this idea that with Heifetz, he leaves aside the recipe book and instead offers seven practices. And the practices are all pretty rich because they involve a lot of whole person intelligence, head, heart, hands, gut. They, they involve this kind of disposition of experimental, you know, prototyping, if you will. They involve, you know, this stance of risk-taking and courage and vulnerability. Our mutual friend, Bill Torbert, I think recommends action inquiry as a kind of uh, practice for stepping forward into the unknown, listening into the dark. Can you say something about how your theory links to Bill's work and anything that would then help those who are in the audience as leaders think about what their practices are? Yes. What I'm doing, and I'm building off of Bill's work, and um, and I do think that Heibitz and Linsky have those practices. So the first step of generative knowing is the encounter with complexity, right? And so that's where we have to tune ourselves. And I think the practices that both the listening to the dark, action inquiry, these are really important tools for how do we encounter complexity without disappearing, you know, without leaving ourselves behind is basically what I'm saying. In the book, I call it rupture, but I, in my research, I called it encounter, and I prefer encounter, so I'm going to go back to encounter. But it's the encounter with complexity, because that's what's happening. And then how do I metabolize that and understand that at multiple levels of system? So th- the other thing that I'm trying to disrupt is that learning and lead and taking leadership doesn't happen in individual. It happens in a whole ecology, right? I'm never separate from the multiple connections I am in. Right. Whether it's my organizational system, my family system, the world, but the place I live. Right. So I think we also have to shift the point, this idea of individual, you know, so we and I and us in this moment are encountering complexity and whatever tools, mechanisms, systems that we need to use, we should use. And Heifetz has them. Bill does a beautiful job with what I call incending, which is a second practice which is, okay, once I attune myself to the complexity and I allow myself to be in the unknown, that's what you're doing. I'm allowing myself to be in the mystery of what may emerge and trusting that it will emerge. I don't know when or how, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna trust it's gonna emerge. Then I start to do the inquiry, this incending, but inquiry is not here. Inquiry is moving beneath the experience of experience. This is John Dewey. John Dewey and his works, he tells us, that not every experience is educative. And if an experience is going to be educative, you must be had by it. Now, of course, it took us a hundred years to understand what the hell did he mean to be had by experience? And that's what he means, that you must be taken by the experience, right? I mean, Keegan says the subject-object move, but you must be subject to the object before the object can become, the subject can become an object. So how can we receive in, in Torbert's talk, the, the darkness of listening into 
that which we cannot foreknow. So, you know, Bill's action inquiry, we, and, and David and I have been playing with action inquiry for years, and it is, people think it's more mysterious than it is, but it really is about how do I practice inquiring into the dark of experience? And then can I go with curiosity and allow whatever needs to be revealed to be revealed, including, oh, I need to do some unlearning or, oh, I'm more, more developmentally attuned to this rather than that. Oh, I have some, you know, stuff around authority that, that I need to deal with, right? Like that's what you're discovering. You're discovering your snags and we all have them and we have them at self levels, collective levels, at societal levels. We all get snagged. So let's go look at the snags. And we've got Gestalt theory to help us there. We have a deep psychology to help us there. We have tools and practices of accompaniment. I mean, that is really important. None of us can do this alone. And then the third practice is what I call awareing. And that's the trickiest of them all. Because when we put into practice the tools, the mechanisms, the systems of action that Heifetz, Linsky, Lalu, Horwitz, Keegan, Jennifer Garvey Berger, Suzanne Greuter, you know, Polarity's work, Barry Johnson, Brian, Emerson, like we've got great people who have taken principles of theory and turned them into practices. We can integrate all of them. What I think, and here's where I want to play, and hopefully David and I will continue to play this, is then how do we name and make up new systems, new ecologies, and which where we can now work differently. So we're not going to take back our learning and put it back in the system. We're going to let a new system emerge. And that we haven't done yet because what happens, what interferes with that? You cannot make a system not do what a system is made to do, which is to reproduce itself over and over again in perpetuity. Mm. And that looks like profit for some systems. It looks like, you know, a particular mission in some, how can we surrender? How can we allow the system itself to die to itself? That's Bill's work. How do we let it die to itself so that a new system emerges around us? Now that is mystery. That's walking on water. Wow. That's that's Luke Skywalker finding Kylo Ren sitting on a rock in the middle of the It's amazing, right? You turned me on. So that's what here we go, Jedi stuff. So David, and, and you just you just triggered something in me. So David in the last episode we 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 recorded, he heard about me having tears on an airplane in Amarillo. One of the uh, times before that, that I had tears in my eyes was when (laughs) the latest series, it was around the holidays and I went to the theater alone and I was watching this. And when Han Solo and Chewbacca came into the scene, I had this moment back to 1977 in my mind and I just tears welled up in my eyes. Right. And when Leia passed away and R2-D2 is Right there, I had tears in my eyes. <laughs> I'm not thinking, I'm a 45-year-old man. What's going on? But to your point, that's fighting Kylo Ren from a rock somewhere in, quote-unquote, Ireland. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, we're talking about the next horizon, in a sense, mm. if I'm not mistaken. And it's, it's a horizon that, you know, many of us in this leadership work any of us trying to, you know, plan or prepare for the future, any of us trying to invest in something new and innovate, 
it's probably a horizon that a lot of us describe in a lot of different ways. Aliki, how do you help people, in a sense, take just the next step in that direction? Well, and this is where it, this is where the stirring comes. So I'm going to prototype my first class. I'm going to teach a complexity leadership course, and I'm going to teach it from the perspective of a stirring. So every session, I want to create opportunities for stirring. And what I mean by stirring is I really want to dislodge them. I want them to pay attention to the next horizon. And that's going to take some experimentation. I don't know quite how to do that. What I've found for myself is that I'm now more and more attracted back to listening to music differently looking at, at sheets of music whilst listening to them, because a sheet of music is very complex and complicated, but the listening to the music is simple. So there's an interesting way. How do I juxtapose that at the same time, there's simplicity and complexity? I think that's part of what stirring is about. And then what does it mean to rest in that place, right? Because that emergence requires you to rest. When you when you ask me what I'm, you know, we're going to talk about what I'm reading. I'm reading who are people who are disrupting the way we think about rest and work? Who's saying that the hustle culture has taken us this far and is actually not going to take us to the next horizon? So I think disruption is part of it. I think uh, slowing way, way, way down is part of it. And this is all like you do things when you think you should be more anxious and you should work harder. You have to slow down and do things in a very different rhythm. So I think rhythms create new horizons, a disruption of patterns create new horizons. And as an educator, how do I start to make safe spaces for adults to taste them? Just have a little taste. Because it's not going to happen in their organization. And it may not even happen out in the community. But it can happen in safe, small spaces, which I love about your work, David. You're creating these amazing, psychologically robust, safe spaces for these very passionate people who are so invested in the mission of the church to do work of managing, of leading, of organizing. And we need to make more safe spaces. So I think we all can do that in any context. Trust. I know it sounds really weird. But how do we create spaces of deep trust and truth-telling? I mean, Heifetz talk about, talks about it, but I think he could talk even more about it, right? How do we speak truth to power? Whose power? Even my own power, right? There were a couple of things in there that really stood out for me. One was, I don't know, which I love, because you're modeling in so many ways what you're, what you're writing about and... And then also, I love the the notion of the experimentation. Look, like this summer, I don't necessarily know yet, but I'm going to start experimenting. I'm going to start exploring, see if we can help adults see some of this and experience that stirring, as you said. Yeah, just a little taste, because I think a little taste will go a long way. It'll inspire its own mystery in the taster. I don't mean to be oblique about it, but I do think that we have to also remember that you know, what are the different doorways? One of the things that happened that I found in, in my original research was that ambiguity was a door in every moment. And I thought, oh, that was a metaphor that came out of that study. And I thought, oh, how do I create many doors instead of just the door? I want to become president and CEO, and there is one path to that, and therefore I will do it. 
my students come to me with that. I say, so what do you want to do? You know, when you, when you finish this thing, well, I'm going to get my next promotion and then I'm going to get this and then I'm going to do that. And then I'm going to come, I'm going to become a CEO. And I'm like, okay, well, wow. The world could be destroyed by then, but okay. <laughs> How do you know you yeah. can be a CEO? Why? Well, because a CEO, I can make lots of money. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, I want, I'm mission driven. You know, this organization does exactly, I'm passionate about cows and I want to do the cow thing. And I'm like, great. Okay. What if it doesn't go that way? Now what? That's the thing that I want to play, prepare them for, right? How do you respond to that? It didn't go that way. Yeah, you remind me of how so much of our field in, in adult learning is about instrumentality. It's about trying to shape, in a sense, all this unknown and define it in a way that's pressing towards some product, some efficiency, some value that's commodifiable. And this all feels so reductionistic relative to the conversation that you've been really helping us to, to explore today. And you also prompt me to, to just share briefly, two weeks ago, you know, accompanying about 20 organizational leaders facing very uncertain and complex futures in their global organizations, we went out to the sea together. The house that we were working in was right by uh, the Tyranian Sea. For half an hour, we invited people to take their shoes off and walk basically on the beach. The water was, was chilly. It's a pebble beach. There were wildflowers on the shore. The wind was, was blowing and the, the breeze was creating all kinds of ripples that were glistening in the sunshine. That half hour of time, by themselves, but by the sea, generated so much insight, creativity, metaphors, and in a sense, stirred the dynamic of their creativity about how they were approaching their, their adaptive challenges and their case studies, which were filled with obstacles and challenges. In a sense, it's not rocket science, but it's about going to take that risk to be taught by experience in a different way and to allow allow different teachers to appear for us, including, you know, nature and the sea. Um, anyway, I, I'm really grateful for all that you've kind of put on the plate for us today. And it seems like for me so much more to digest, even though I've read the book and I've been kind of accompanying you all these years, because you're you're opening up so many doors, as you say, for us to explore. So I just want to express as your friend, thank you for, for this contribution. Just the beginning. Thank you. Well, and I will put links to some of your articles, the book, I will put all of that in the show notes. And so that will be there for listeners to explore more, because I think we've definitely set the table for some really, really cool reflection and opportunities for making sense, for helping listeners makes sense of not only what we're talking about, but what they're experiencing in their lives. So as we close out for today, I would love to just hear a little bit more. I know that you, Aliki, had mentioned something that you've been exploring a little bit, but what have the two of you been listening to or streaming or reading? What's caught your attention in recent times? And it could have something to do with what we've just discussed. It could have nothing to do with what we've just discussed, but what's been on your radar? Well, there's a couple of things. My friends who know me well and know that I have a, a hypervigilant, over-responsible mu muscle are sending me books like 
How to Do Nothing, <laughs> uh, Resisting the Attention Economy by Jenny O'Dell, which I haven't started, but I will. And then Rest is Resistance, a manifesto by Trisha Hershey, which I have started and it is quite good. So I think there's a message being sent to me. So I have to pay attention to that. But the other thing is I'm actually immersing myself in, it's something that I've kind of, I've known about, I've been circling about, but finally it happened. And Nora Bateson is hosting One Data Labs. And, and something that's happened for me when I'm now working in the human, more than human space, or so artificial intelligence. And artificial intelligence has, I think, something that we need to pay attention to in a very slow and deliberate way. So I'm, I'm actually uh, working uh, in this sense of where is the, what's the warm data, the relational, entangled, uh, visible, invisible data that I want to continue to tune myself to because that is uh, the gift of my being human and not artificial intelligence. So I'm kind of interested in, I'm excited that artificial intelligence can now listen to a meeting and give me a summary of a meeting. I guess if I'm, if I'm a CEO, that's really important because I can't be at 10 places at the same time. However, I'm always going to be missing the energetic dynamics and I don't want to give that up. Mm. So I think I am of the age where I'm not ready to become the Borg. I still want to maintain being human. So I'm interested in that. And that's a, a an edge for me. And I'm working with engineers. I'm working with computer scientists. They use language I don't understand. But I want to be in that mix because I think it's important for me, as somebody who's interested in generative knowing, to continue to bring that uh, mysterious warmth to the conversation. Mm. Well, and you are you are now introducing Star Trek into the conversation here. Oh. So I, th that's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll have to do another podcast. <laughs> Father David, how about you, sir? Well, I'm so glad that Aliki had all these amazing things that she's doing because I have to admit, at the end of the day and the little bit of free time I have before I go to sleep now, I'm watching stupid pet videos, basically, and uh, reruns of Star Wars Rebels. It's just been that kind of a couple months. So, so Aliki. <laughs> Thank you for keeping uh, us highbrow in the territory of academia. Yeah, I'm going to let you do that heavy reading on my behalf for a while. I think whoever sent you how to do nothing, when they ask you if you've read it, you just say no. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. No. no, I didn't read that. Sorry. <laughs> uh, well, to the two of you, thank you so much for a wonderful dialogue today. Can't thank you enough for your time. Be well, take care. Thanks for your good work to the two of you. Thank you for your good work. Thank you, Scott, and for all that you're doing. And may the, may the force be with you. <laughs> Thanks, you too. Okay, Father David, that was a really, really fun conversation. Not only uh, as we reflect on it now in literally September, and this was recorded back in May, May the 4th. It was wonderful to re-listen to this dialogue. And as we were planning this conversation, I had come across a quote in her work that really, really fascinated me. It was from 2015, an adult education quarterly article. And she said, the findings show that for those adults with more complex forms of knowing, doing, and being, an encounter with ambiguity reveals the mysteries of potential. And wow, 
right? I mean, that that seems to me working in that ambiguity is the work of leadership. Would you agree? I totally agree. Both in Aliki's research and in mine, one of the things that became apparent is that as people continue to advance down that path of adult maturation and cognitive complexity, one of the things that subsides is the fear response to the unknown. Hmm. In fact, for many people who have the value of more perspective on life, more tolerance for ambiguity, more willingness to be in relationship to, to complex circumstances, that in fact, they begin to see ambiguity as a field of potential to be shaped, rather than something to be managed or controlled. And when a person has that view toward ambiguity, all of a sudden, a sense of agency and creativity are available, which weren't before. You were either reacting or fleeing from those circumstances. But, you know, as Bob Anderson and the folks in the leadership circle suggest, when a person is moved into those, those later stages, the capacity to, in a sense, tolerate that ambiguity and in fact, see it as a opportunity really is very exciting. I think the challenge that leaders face is, how do you help the rest of your organization also get to that place because uh, being pushed out of people's comfort zones, the adaptive work that you know we draw reference to in the conversation, Heifetz's work, it's very scary for people. And I think you know in Aliki's work, she's got such a bias to going into those places which a lot of people fear. The reason I think she's motivated to do that is. If we're constantly learning in this these instrumental, highly controlled ways, we're just going to keep repeating the past. But if we allow ourselves to do what she's suggesting, which is as leaders, when we get to a place of disruption, crisis, or conflict, we pay attention to what's going on. We slow down the rhythm. We create these safe spaces to sense what's being called forth from us. We dig into our values, our sense of purpose. Uh, we trust that we can be instruments of something, maybe that kind of spontaneous reorganization that takes place in chaotic circumstances and bring something better forth. So I'm really continuing to appreciate what she's done here, even if it's difficult to wrestle with. Well, and from the sounds of it, Father David, you're doing some of that work yourself. You're existing in that space more and more as you facilitate discussions and dialogue where there's a number of competing commitments and personal agendas that walk in the door. I mean, that in some ways is the work. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think the word that's often used is emergence. When we we really want to do something improvisational and new, we have to trust this kind of organic process of emergence. And as leaders, learn how to create the conditions and the synergies that bring forth the emergence that's constructive and really beneficial. And that means, I think, really helping people to feel safe enough to take some risks. And I think, as Aliki was saying, do as much unlearning as, as learning. You know, as always, I am so thankful for our conversations, sir. And and we have a, we have some more ahead of us. So for listeners, we have an episode coming up in the in the next few weeks, which will also be a fun one to debrief and to think through. 
But for me, the practical wisdom here is that it's not always clean, clear. That box in the textbook that has four quadrants that looks very pretty isn't <laughs> even a box. <laughs> yep. And how do we move forward then? And I think that's what Aliki is helping us think through so that we can come to that best path forward. Wow, so much fun. As always, thank you so much, sir. Thanks, Scott. I love these conversations. And uh, I think you're creating such an amazing space for deep reflection, but and reflection that really could touch people's lives in meaningful and impactful ways for the good. So, so thanks again. It's an honor. Well, thank you so much. Be well. You have just finished another episode of Practical Wisdom for Leaders with Scott Allen. To contact me, visit scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I'm also on LinkedIn, so let's connect. If you have feedback, I'd love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening. And now here's my daughter, Emily, with the outro. You've been listening to Phronesis, Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.